This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Brad Ceylon and Sarah Corrigan own the Root School in Vermont. They teach a variety of skills, including self-reliance, survival, tracking, and naturalist studies. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss instinctive shooting, mushroom identification, basketry, foraging, and high tanning. If these sorts of skills interest you, be sure to check out my new website, anchoredoutdoors.com, where we cover all things fishing, foraging, homesteading, and subsistence hunting. Our first masterclass drops this week, and the next dozen are soon to follow. If you sign on now as a member, memberships are only $4.99 a month. That will be changing once the first three classes are up, so don't wait to hop on board. Again, that's anchoredoutdoors.com. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is one of the biggest sources for guns, gun parts and accessories, ammunition, and gunsmithing tools in the world. Brownells has many kinds of optics related to shooting and hunting, and I recently got my hands on a pair of Vortex binoculars. I've been impressed by how crisp they are while out in the field. It's no surprise, Vortex is a major player in optics, so their cutting-edge technology was bound to make its way into their binoculars. I use mine while birdwatching, deer hunting, scouting new land, and checking out tuna activity in the open ocean. I'll include the direct link in the write-up to this episode, or you can head on over to brownells.com. I was born in Rochester, New York, but I was raised... Kind of in different suburbs all over the country, outside of Boston, outside of Cincinnati, outside of LA, outside of New York City, all the little suburbs. Now you're sitting beside a very beautiful, pregnant wife, Sarah. Now, Sarah, what's your story? Where were you born and raised? 
I was born in Oklahoma, but that was a very short-lived experience, and then largely raised in New Jersey, suburbs. So not too far out of New York City. How did you guys meet? Uh, I was an intern at the Tracker School in New Jersey, uh, <gasps> studying the skills that we teach now. And Sarah came in as a – she had missed a trip that she was supposed to take to Japan. And so she came to volunteer at the Tracker School, and we broke the fraternization rule <laughs> between interns and volunteers. Yeah, I didn't know that that's how you guys that that's how you guys met, or even that you interned at the Tracker School. Yeah, definitely, I learned a lot there. Okay, so Brad, how, have you always been interested in the outdoors? Because I mean, you guys both look like super. This is going to sound really, really silly coming out of my mouth, but you guys both look like super hip, attractive young people that I could, I might see you in a pub in New York City and just think you're, you know, city folk. But really, you're super talented, skilled outdoors people who can. I mean, you guys offer a whole bunch of courses. We'll talk about this later, obviously, and, and root school. But how did you get into this sort of primitive life and survival and all the things that you do now? Yeah. So I mean, we. I mean, for me, it was something I was always into as a kid is getting outside and, you know, foraging for leaks and building shelters and was obsessed with like my side of the mountain and hatchet and things like that really inspired me. And then as I got older, it, you know, I didn't find the challenges I was looking for in academics or in sports. But when I went outside and the weather was nasty and I was still like, pushing my way into the middle of a swamp, it was challenging me in the way that I needed to be challenged. And so as soon as I had control over where I live, I fled the suburbs for Vermont and have really pushed the skills in the sense of, of always trying to get away from that like more comfortable, sterile, boring existence that I was always trying to escape from as a kid. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I think there's a lot of commonalities in that. And like, as a kid, like there I was hanging out in the Creek, trying to collect crayfish and do the things and like really be outside. And then that suburban life played a lot of sports, did the things and then sought out these experiences when I was in my mid teens again, and really felt the sort of the richness and the liveness that that brings and then was compelled to follow them. And so it is, you know, I think that a large part of our story is that we're suburban kids, you know, at our roots. And I think that that is a, is a funny element and surely a strength in that it really kind of says that you can have these beginnings that aren't necessarily like raised by wolves in the wild and can pursue these things, but can really like fall in love with them and chase them and, and take them on as, as valuable elements in our lives. Well, the other thing that's really inspiring now that I'm seeing you guys and talking to you guys and hearing your story, you guys are young. What, you're in your 30s? Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you didn't really dive into it until, am I safe to say, you know, professionally in your 20s, would that work? Does that timeline sound right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I was teaching summer camps at 18, and then we started the school and I was, what, 25? Mm hmm. Okay, so that means that you've learned a lot of skills and covered a lot of ground in, what, a, a decade? Yeah, 
I mean, and I think that like between Brad and I, we share like very different wheelhouses when it comes to skills and experiences and that, you know, various friends and colleagues that have been a part of this also take on some different skill sets that really make up, that make up the school what it is and it's breath, you know. Let's talk about the school. So in 2007, um, after teaching lots of other places and going to lots of different schools ourselves, Sarah and I were living in Vermont, decided to take a stab at running a school ourselves. And we really wanted people to be able to experience the connections that we were experiencing in the outdoors, which were largely coming through firsthand, you know, getting really into the natural world, like all the skills that we work and all the skills that Roots teaches. You have to really get involved with the natural world in a very different way than people are used to where you have to learn the nuances and you have to look more at the characteristics of a plant or a tree or a rock than the name of it, where you're really engaging in these long-term relationships with the natural world. And so the whole idea behind the school was that we would be helping other people to, to make that relationship themselves. And so we started teaching, you know, a bow class was the first class that I taught, which is a four-day conversation with a piece of wood. <laughs> where you start with a log and you end with a, a bow that you could hunt a deer with. And, you know, we taught flint napping classes, which is making stone tools, arrowheads and things like that. We taught tracking and the first three classes just went really well. And we, you know, we have a lot of passion for the skills. And I think people know when, when they're being lied to often in terms of like your passion for a skill set or not. And I think it's infectious and it, it gives students a lot more than just the information that you're giving them when you can pass along part of your passion for something. And so, yeah, we we just took that beginning and started running with it. Yeah, I would agree as far as taking that passion. And I feel like Brad said that well and to say it in like a rougher way. I think we were young enough to be blessedly dumb enough to not take this on <laughs> and that like in any other context or sensibility or planning, like it might not have made sense. And, and it was really driven by like, I think this is super cool. Do you think this is cool? Let's do this. Let's build these bows and so on and so forth. And that, that was really the catalyst. I think that pushed it forward. It wasn't, it wasn't sitting down and being like, let's share these poetic moments with other people that mean so much to us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about some of the classes that you teach because I'm just itching to break down some of the specifics. What's your most popular class? What do people want to take the most? Um, bow making is is always popular. We build Osage bows with about 20 people every winter and then throughout the year with kids and other adults, you know, another 20, 30 bows get made. So, we build a lot of bows with folks and then the basic survival classes are popular, just like people gaining a baseline of self-reliance in the, in the woods, everything from like how to set up a tarp real tight and nice. And then, you know, the basics of fire making and water purification and, you know, all the, the goodies for, for that kind of thing, botany and uh, some basic trapping and stuff like that. Those classes are, get a lot of interest. And then basketry, a lot of people are really interested in like, yeah, willow basketry. Yeah, um, maybe foraging. Foraging, so for I th sure. I think it gets parsed out mm. between craft and handcraft and how people take that on is really uh, a drive in our student base. And then also just sort of this idea of self-reliance. 
Yeah, well, this basket making thing is actually really interesting to me. I think what's so beautiful is that you can look at different you know, places in the world and cultures and peoples have taken materials and then adapted them into making vessels in so many different ways and so many technical ways that are so complicated and involved. And they're just so necessary as receptacles for like all of life, you know, like all the things that we have like bags and containers for now are, are going to have a place. And so, you know, whether that's like storage of food or like even foraging and going out and foraging, you need to be able to put that into something. Yeah. It makes me think of that. There's a study in Poland where they gather a lot of, there's a lot of foraging for wild mushrooms and they looked at mushroom poisoning and more than people selecting the wrong mushrooms was people transporting them in plastic bags and then rotting super quickly in the plastic bags because they don't breathe. And so people who were gathering in, in perforated containers like a basket where the mushrooms could breathe were experiencing less cases of poisoning. And so, you know, there's like there's nothing better for, for foraging than a basket. And if it's one you made, then that kind of creates that relationship to a step further. Yeah. yeah. I know that when I go out mushroom picking, I have a basket so that spores can be spread while I'm walking. Is that, does that sound about right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, you know, I think about the world of foraging so much or just like living in shelters, but then fishing in and of itself has a huge history of not only like fishing baskets, but also the baskets that fish were carried in and how those baskets are going to be built based on what size of fish and type of fish. It was like a monumental part of my life in which I wove a willow fish trap and caught fish. That was, that's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you use when you're making baskets? What exactly are you using? Are you using bark branches? I wouldn't even know where to start. All the things. And, and it's just what that material is. And how that's going to be supportive of what your end goal is. So folded bark baskets are great in the fact that they're speedy and quick and beautiful, but they're specific to a time of year. Willow is really common. It's just like flexible twigs. People see wicker, but then that's like a, a willow-like material. Um, I just think it's about availability of material and season matched with end goals. Right. What your need is. Like a pack basket something that you're going to wear on your back and carry all your clothing and and things like that. You want it to be really strong, but you don't want it to be heavy. So a material like black ash, which you break into splints is very light and very sturdy is ideal for that. Whereas something like a potato basket that you're going to gather like a bushel of potatoes out of the field, like the level of sturdiness that you're looking for is different. And so something like willow is going to be more ideal, even if it's a little extra heavy. So yeah, I think in general, one of the things you see across the board with the skills is throughout history and throughout place and throughout culture, people were ingenious with matching the the access that they had to materials with their needs. You know, so like people who hunted off of horseback with bows built shorter bows because you need to be able to get it over the back of the horse to shoot to your offside. And so materials like horn and, you know, bone or composite bows that were layers of wood and sinew were created to make these beautiful short bows that could shoot very powerfully and, you know, hunt a buffalo with it. Whereas people who were hunting on foot in forest environments like New England, um, where we're from, the Native Americans here, 
built bows that were one single piece of wood that were long and quiet and accurate where they were hunting things like deer and elk, you know, on foot. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of the cool things about what we study is to get to see like what people were doing based on what they had access to and what their needs were. Yeah. And how the landscape has now changed. And so we're sort of like still exploring what our common needs as our people and working with the materials that we have. But I think, I think it often comes up that it really says how intelligent and creative people have been for a long time, especially when you're looking at baskets and you see all of the different patterns that are incorporated when weaving just a simple round receptacle. So this is a silly question. Are, are all baskets handmade? And I will explain why I'm asking. I love baskets, but I find that they range from, you know, $2 at the dollar store to hundreds of dollars for a beautiful handmade basket from Africa. But are they all, are they all handmade? That's my understanding, which blows my mind every time. Other than like maybe the um, the like stapled sheets of wood that like raspberries come in or strawberries, you know, the, I think that's like maybe it. I don't even know. But my understanding is that all baskets are handmade, that there really hasn't been a mechanical process to step in. Yeah, it's really probably whether or not the people making them are getting paid a fair price or not for their work. Yeah, it is. And I mean, if you go to a place like Bali, several times a day when they go to prayer or whatever it is that their religious ceremony that they have there, they leave out these baskets. And they're usually just made of grass, but I've seen the women making them and I think they can make a basket in like a minute or two. It's incredibly fast. They're small, right? They're like little trays that they put their offerings in. But you have to think that maybe maybe those cheap baskets, even though they are cheap for whatever the ethical reasons are, they're still handmade, which is pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So what about hybrid baskets? Would they ever do baskets back then that had sinew and trees? What else did they use? Um, so, yeah, bark was used for sure. Different fiber materials. So, like... You can, if you look at weaving clothes, that's essentially like a complex weave of a basket. And so taking plant fibers and twining them into a bag or, you know, twining into, they even made water vessels where they yeah, would. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like, some people talk about like watertight containers being like the height of basketry technology. And so you're working with like natural plant-based cellulose fibers coated in, in tree resins. Oh my gosh, that sounds yeah. amazing. Do you guys teach that? God, I want to be that good. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. Um, Talk to me about bows. If I were to make my own bow, I I remember reading this in Backwoodsman Magazine. And I remember a long time ago thinking, I want to make my own bow. And then I got really nervous about just how heavy it would hit. I mean, what what poundage does a home... I know that this varies, but what is the heaviest that you can make a homemade bow? A good bowyer could make a bow that was, you know, up to 150 pounds, like way higher. Oh than my gosh! Possible. Not that anyone's going. Not that it. anyone's pulling that. I mean, there's a couple guys I've seen in England who are making reproductions of English longbows up in the 150s. And Howard Hill, who's a famous bow hunter archer from the 50s, he was hunting bows around 100 pounds. It's not uncommon for me to build a bow between 50 and 60 pounds, which is all I need for whitetail, which mainly what I'm hunting. And then students, the main problem at the class is getting the bow light enough to be comfortable. So what we do is we aim to build it so that it's heavy and 
and flexing evenly and it, everything about it could be a working bow, but it's just too heavy for the bowyer. And then we evenly reduce it until it's the right weight. After four days of scraping on a stick, people are <laughs> trying to finish. And they, you know, the trick is to not have them come out overbowed because accuracy is a bigger issue in a lot of ways than the arrow uh, speed. Yeah. Realistically, how close do you have to get with a homemade bow? Um, so, I mean, that's largely up to your accuracy, which in a lot of ways is up to your arrows um, and then your amount of time practicing. I don't take shots above like 15 or 20 yards, depending on the situation. So it's pretty tight compared to anything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember bringing one home from Bolivia. I bought one off the village there and it is just such a different beast. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. And the, the time, the amount of practice that you have to put in and how well you have to know your tackle and how well you have to take care of your arrows. I mean, that's one of the things too, is like arrow making is this forgotten kind of lost art or this thing that people take for granted. But in a lot of ways, it's you can kill an animal with a not great bow and a great arrow, but you can't really kill an animal with a great bow and a bad arrow because the arrow is doing the work. So I take a lot of time with my arrows, really trying to per- perfect everything you can about them. And you have to stay on top of them and keep them straight. And yeah, there's a lot of maintenance there. Do you have to practice instinctive shooting? I know that when I was going out in the yard and practicing with this bow from Bolivia, when I really just didn't think and I just came up and shot, I was way more accurate. And so for people who have not heard of instinctive shooting, can you explain a bit about that? Yeah. So instinctive shooting is the idea that you're not sighting off of anything. You know, when you shoot a basketball, you don't aim off of your hand or your the ball or anything like that. You look at the target and you you practice good form and repetitive form so that your brain can learn how hard to push and where to put your hands to make it go where you want. So when you're shooting a bow, instinctively, you want to perfect your form so that you're shooting the same way every time. And then you start close so that you're hitting. And then as you hit, your brain learns, ah, this is where my front hand needs to be for the arrow to go where I want. And then you move back and back and back. Because, you know, as much as people say you learn from failure and you do, with accuracy, learning from success is a big part of it, too. So if you're not having any success, you're not going to get any better. So, you know, it's always pushing people to start closer until they're hitting what they want and then backing out. And it becomes aiming, you know, the idea of aiming is really focusing on what you want to hit at the exclusion of everything else in the world, which isn't, you know, it's one thing when you're standing on a field or in your backyard. And it's another thing when your adrenaline has dumped into your system and you're shooting between trees and Instinctive shooting, though, it, because it doesn't require a point of aim, it's it's really quick and it's really versatile in hunting situations. Yeah. I wonder if in fishing, if it's supposed to be, I wonder if it would be worth it to try taking some of the fundamentals behind instinctive shooting and putting that into fly fishing. I think we spend so much time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we spend so much time trying yeah. to align our cast. If we just let our instincts take over, I wonder what would happen. I think one of the things we've noticed is that a lot of the throwing and hand-eye coordination accuracy feats, they cross over. So like if you spend time getting good with a throwing stick, you're going to be better at instinctive shooting with a bow and arrow. And like when I transitioned to starting pistol and shotgun shooting, 
my instructor was like, have you done this before? And I was like, no, I just shoot my bow a lot. But the transfer was there of my brain having a connection between where my eyes are looking and what my hands are doing. Mm. So what are your thoughts about, you know, shooting a compound bow and having to line everything up? Is that totally unnatural? I have honestly so little experience with it that I, I, I've shot them a couple of times. And so, yeah, it's just not my, <laughs> I don't know much about it. I mean, I, I like, it's nice and easy to be able to line up a peep sight with a pin and squeeze a button. Uh, but it's very, very different. And I mean, the, the range you can get is totally different. You know, you're not, you're not grouping at 60 yards with a stick bow. And I don't know anyone who is, I'm sure there's a couple people out there who are, but I'm certainly not. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so is there much crossover in fly fishing? Like are people going back to like old bamboo rods or? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's a full circle thing. You know, you start, you start at one end of the spectrum and then you just want to kind of finish off on the other. And for a lot of people, it's actually a complete circle back to where you started. So, you know, a lot of people started when there were no carbon fiber rods. And so they started on say something like glass and then it got maybe too easy or too fast and they want to challenge themselves and they go right back to where they started. So yeah, there is a lot of that kind of moving backwards, but I think, I think a lot of outdoors people are just really connected to history. I think it's, it's built into a lot of us to, to kind of want to be connected back to our history and the way things were before. Yeah. As far as classes you guys are teaching, so you've got basket weaving, uh, making a bow. What else is a popular class? I, I know foraging is popular. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And foraging seems to have gotten way more popular in the past couple of years. Yeah, it has. It, it really has. Yeah. For better and worse. I you know. <laughs> yeah. Do, so do, do tell, what are your thoughts? What's the for worse? Oh, I, you know, I think just that I, well, in the broad scheme of things, like we teach these skills so that people can connect with their land base. And we feel like more than anything that that's going to, that's going to help like support that relationship and it's going to bring them closer and they're going to give a shit, you know, about what's happening and going on. And far more than just, you know, us standing there and telling them that they should is for them to really like have those intimate experiences and foraging is intimate, especially when you're going to be putting plants that you've gathered into your body or feeding it to loved ones. And then sometimes it's just the, the way that people take that practice on. Maybe it's a matter of not doing the heavy lifting and understanding the populations they're working with. And I think this could be said about harvesting and gathering anything. It doesn't have to be plant-based by any means where it's like, the, the the ignorance means people go too far or the drive to make money means that things are harvested too heavily. And, and so then there are these, these pockets of, of ethical questions that really come into play where you go, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. right. And so we really want to support that. I, you know, I want people to know their plants, but also I really want people to understand the the ecosystem at large and that we're not the only ones that use those plants or their reproductive habits so that they have a sensibility of what is a sensible way of going about it. So I'm stoked on one hand. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh, goodness, may these populations survive you. (laughs) (laughs) I I find that for a a lot of the books that I read about foraging, there's a lot of real connection and giving thanks to the spirits. And it's it's 
a little frustrating for me because on one hand, I, I'm so close to getting my husband involved. He really loves going out and finding and hunting and searching for certain medicines and certain foods. But then as soon as I start bringing up the history of spirits and paying thanks to the powers that be, I, I lose him. Is that something that you guys really focus on with your teaching, it, you know, the spirits and the giving thanks? And if so, how do you keep people engaged through it? So it's it's kind of not like we are we were pretty specific to be like almost like a secular survival school. A lot of the schools out there have there's a lot of connection with spirituality, which is great. It's just we wanted to be a place where people could come to just kind of get the skills in their raw form. And that we find also that people get there on their own. Like if you are really doing a good job leading somebody through the experience of challenging themselves with a skill that's a lot, a lot of difficulty to learn and challenging them to engage with their landscape in a different way and to, to have to learn something outside of themselves to follow the rule book that humans don't write. You know, like when you're, when you're engaging with the natural world, it's just, it is the way it is and you have to accept it. And so that that experience of learning something new of challenging yourself and overcoming it and of seeing the world from a different perspective those things kind of drive you in that direction without me having to say anything and so if i do a good job leading people that hopefully they're having experiences that may be thought of as spiritual but that there's no discussion of that necessarily and that the way that we teach people to be thankful is to show gratitude by not over harvesting by understanding like Sarah was talking about that that plant or animal's relationship with the land base um, how it reproduces is a huge one because then you understand like how not to interrupt that process or when you harvest this plant how to like drop the seeds or how you were talking about using a basket so that the spores from the mushrooms are spreading across the forest you know all sorts of things like that where like with our students, we'll do things like in our hunting class, we plant installations of wildlife food so that some of it is like when we're planting oak trees with students, they're never going to experience the benefit of hunting that under that tree. But the deer in this area will experience the benefit of having those oaks here. And so they're giving back to the cycle in, in a way that allows for their extraction to not be the things that they're taking from it to not be like this extractive process that has no give back. So I think that's the way that we approach that element to it is by really trying to, to get people to act in the name of that. I think we're just not so like direct about language around it and that we kind of follow suit by, by taking action in those ways. You know, I think we really trying to make an attempt to like, you know, do more than just for ourselves and like to consider the the greater species at large unto themselves. And, you know, I'm not one to like leave offerings, but I'm surely one to like move branches and clear ways out so that they can be more abundant. And I, I don't say poetic things, but I surely greet them with lots of enthusiasm and high fives. <laughs> I, you know, like <laughs> I, in like our own way we're like we're there and we're with it but we don't we don't use like a language I think that typifies that I think that the, the language of spirits and the language that you guys have are still all going to center on the same thing which is in a, is, is sustainability right and engagement and and like that reality and recognition of another life force we're like oh you you are so great and doing your thing I am going to be responsible to you because I'm interacting with you and harvesting you 
Coming up, Brad, Sarah, and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Brownells for making this episode possible. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is one of the biggest sources for guns, gun parts and accessories, ammunition, and gunsmithing tools in the world. Brownells is a third-generation family-owned business that's always been located in the same county in Iowa. The Brownells family and employees love outdoor adventures, including hunting and shooting, and absolutely support being a part of a greater community. Recently, Brownells donated N95 masks and protective glasses to the local hospital. They also donated some of their computer power to be used to research possible cures for the coronavirus as part of the Folding at Home project. If you enjoy the outdoors, especially if you like to hunt or shoot targets, you need to check out brownells.com. Well, something else that I get a lot of people messaging me about are mushrooms. So I have tried to tell so many people about spore prints. Can we just get this record, get the record straight right now while we're sitting here? Can you please explain to people who want to get into mushroom picking what a spore print is and how to do it? Oh, I honestly just do them because they're so beautiful. (laughs) They are. Truth be told, I harvest mushrooms and yet even I will sidestep trying to teach people mushrooms. It is a technical and a weird world. And I, so I love doing spore prints where you have those like two different pieces of paper, the colored paper, and you, you know, you place that mushroom cap on and you keep the wind from disturbing the spores. And then you can really take that nuanced, detailed look at it. But people are required to do some heavy lifting to really learn mushrooms and find those knowledgeable people that have done that work. Yeah. And we'll just explain to people listening. I mean, you could find a mushroom that looks super similar or two mushrooms that look similar and one has green spores and one has white spores and the white spores are the edible, the edible ones. So can we just explain to people how to make the spore print? Like you said, I've got a piece of paper at home that's half black, half white. Mm -hmm. And then I put my mushroom over top of, of the paper spore side down. And then can you guys go ahead and just explain what, what the next step is? Yeah. I mean, and so this, you know, my simple approach is then to just place a bowl to cover that cap on that piece of paper, those two pieces of paper of different colors, and then just let it sit for a while till I forget about it and remember it again and come back to it. But we did just find that mushroom at our friend's school and it was, it was a matter of the color of the spores and they were green spores and it was the sickener. And I was like, cool. Not eating this one. <laughs> and that made, <laughs> that made all of the difference to take that time and look at that detail. So yeah, those that black piece of paper and that white piece of paper, not knowing what that spore print color is going to be is a big difference. Yeah. And like I would tap, I tap the mushroom real quick, put the bowl over top. Mm-hmm. Why, why do we put the bowl over top? Are we trying to get some sort of condensation? Like what's the point of the bowl over top? I, you know, I just always take that to not to just interrupt any wind flow just so that you get that nice drop of spores without being disturbed. Is there any truth in this? I I had been told this some time ago with these, uh, I think they're parasols. And I was taking the gills out and someone said, make sure that you sprinkle them all over your yard to see if they'll grow back. So I did that. It, it didn't work. Some years they come when they want, some years they don't. Is there any truth in that? If I got, you know, process my mushrooms and then sprinkle their bits around my yard. Are they guaranteed to come back? Ooh, I think guaranteed is maybe just the, the <laughs> pinch right there. Mushrooms are really picky about their, the conditions in which they'll come out. 
And so they really need like the right amount of temperature, the right amount of moisture and those things in combination at the right time of year or like soil temperature for morels is really important around here. Species of trees that they're around and it's there. It's a pretty complex relationship, but I think paying attention to or really anything you can learn about how to propagate the things that you're harvesting is super valuable. So like some mushroom species, it's better to cut them from their base because their base will regrow or allow it to regrow in the same place some mushroom species if it's growing out of a tree and you leave the base in the tree and you just cut the outside off then it can regrow so there's things like that where if if you know how it reproduces then you can interact with it in a way that will allow more of it to to come back and i'm kind of like yeah sprinkle those gills who knows who's to say otherwise and with a gilled mushroom like those spores are going to be there that makes a lot of sense I've got a question for you guys. Do you guys, obviously, I'm assuming you have pine trees there. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of using the bark as flour, grinding it up and using it as flour and baking? Yeah. You know, it's not something that I've done, but yes, very much so. I like to eat the inner bark just as it is in the springtime when all of the sap is running and it's sugary sweet with like that resiny profile. But I've never gone to that extent. We know somebody locally who's made a bunch of bark flour. We have a vegetarian friend who likes to make pine bark jerky from the inner bark. <laughs> to me, that's that's it's starvation food. But All right. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I thought it was. Same with the catkins, right? And I know those are also um, high in protein. I'm just going off of Beverly Gray's book. I remember her saying that the inner bark and the catkins were high in protein, and that they were used as a survival food, and that you can dehydrate the catkins and the buds and put them in stews and stuff later for a little extra nutrition. Mm. Do you guys take it that far? I mean, clearly you you don't have to. You guys live in the modern world, but do you guys try to practice any of that stuff? Yeah. We and definitely I think- forage and dry food. It's like, it's all of it, you know, like gathered, grown, bought, traded. It's all the things for sure to make food happen. We have wild rice in around. So that's something we definitely go for. It's pretty amazing. I think we, we, we mainly go for stuff that's like choice. That's exciting to have yellowfoot chanterelles dried in the, in the root cellar or leeks pickled or yeah. Um, let me take you guys down the next route because I know that we're we're going to start running out of time here. But hides. So tanning hides is something I'm super passionate about. And I think largely in part because there's so much to learn about it. Yeah. That's something that you guys, you guys specialize in that, right? Mm-hmm. Special finding- I'm a little shy, but yes, definitely teach and do a lot people. of high tanning. Yes. <laughs> Are you finding that that's a growing market? Weirdly, yes. And wonderfully. I am all about that. There are so many hides that people don't use that other people or they they themselves can pick up and make into a beautiful fabric. I have this funny relationship where I tan so many hides, but I have I can't genuinely say that I I love it. I just feel so deeply compelled by it. And I just move ahead because it is a lot of work. Yeah, so how many hours will it take somebody to I mean, I've done it. I I yeah. personally know how many it took me to do, but how many hours will it take a skilled person to tan a buckskin? I mean, hair off to make a piece of 
flesh into leather. Yeah. So most of the the people we know who do it professionally or, or or like a lot will work in batches. And so it's way more efficient to like take six hides and bring them through the whole process than it is to do one at a time. And I would say but still I you know a couple days. As yeah, 3 Two. day 3 days of work you could bust out. 3 full days of work you could bust out four to six hides depending on their size and toughness. It also really depends like is it a moose hide? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. a whole different ball game that's like five deer hides all of these skills but hides especially like there's a right outcome but there are so many paths to get there so like when somebody says oh you do that i don't do that but i do it like this i am never one to be like well that's wrong it's like did it become did it that work? beautiful fabric then you're doing it right great right. The other thing with with buckskin is that it's kind of like the anti-industrial modern object in that it takes a really long time and all this blood and sweat and tears to make it, but then it lasts forever. So whatever garment you make out of it, be able to hand it on to your kids so long as you don't let bugs eat it. Industrially, like, was, like, such a toxic part of our landscape for so long. Tanneries? Tanneries along the rivers were really detrimental. And so when you can do something on your own in such a clean and healthy way... What are the different, what's the terminology for if you're doing it hair off versus hair on? Or is it just hair on versus hair off? I think that works fine. And then usually I often just refer to them as pelts. It's just fine. I, you know, I pelts. wouldn't often refer to like a deer, deer hair on as a pelt, but yeah. And then certain animals lend themselves to hair on more than others. So a lot of the animals that have hollow hair, like deer and moose and elk, their hair falls out pretty easily because it's more brittle than something like a mink that has really small hair follicles that hold in real tight. So that's a th a, an element to it also. Most of the hair on deer hides that I've seen have been chemi tan, but it's possible to do it primitively. It's just hard to make it so that the hair doesn't slip. How would you do a deer skin hair on and keep it soft? I'm just trying to imagine how I would soften it. Yeah, th th exactly. Uh, without it, losing all that hair you would have to frame soften it and you wouldn't get it you wouldn't get it buckskin soft you know what i mean or it would just take a lot more work because right. you, you, you could just, do it multiple times yeah and i mean they have so much hair that it can shed forever and you know you barely notice but how did you tan your hide uh in like in that time when I, before we were rolling i was telling you and i was alone with adelaide up there uh, -huh. uh i did it i did it with her so i just did i've got that book um buckskins to have to pull it up again. You know, the legendary book. Yeah, Matt Richards. Yep, yep. That book is epic. And so I basically just followed his uh, all the way through. So I used the ash from my wood stove, soaked it that way. Used the, actually, the river was just starting to freeze up, so it was tough. But I was able to use some running water that way. And then I, I brain. I used brains. Awesome. Yeah, and it, yeah. yeah I, I ended up with a little, it was definitely more of a rawhide. I think I need to go back to the drawing board because I, I mean, it was all shaping up so well. And as I was softening, it was all starting to happen. But then uh, I must have done something wrong. We figured actually Tom's partner, Lisa, does a lot of tanning. And we ended up tracking it back to how it was grained. Right. So then, and then also we were figuring out that it had to do with my, my wood. I was using a softwood, not a hardwood. And then I know in his book, he says that he hasn't actually used that wood before. So Lisa and I were trying to put together all the pieces to figure out what exactly 
had gone wrong, but I thought my mine ended up pretty decent. But then when she brought me hers and I could feel just how soft it felt, I realized that I had obviously missed a step. So I'm excited to hopefully team up with you guys in the future to do some stuff uh, with Anchored Outdoors and show people how to tan hides. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we'll talk sure. about that stuff later. You really went for it, which is awesome. And like, you got to see how much work it is and how like <laughs> awesome it can be. <laughs> Yep. It was an experience. And then at some point the rivers froze up and I, I had no water. And so I was out there with this hide on my like snow covered yard and I was trying to clean it with snow, which actually ended up working, but I was in the cabin and I had my fishing net and I was wringing it with my fishing net and doing it all in the dark. It was, it was a super, super special experience, but uh, it was a lot of work for sure. It's a workout. Yeah. You like gives you amazing forearms. <laughs> Big time. Uh, Well, it's getting late there for you guys. What's next on your guys' list? I feel like I could talk to you for days about specific skills, but um, maybe we can do that in a future discussion. So just as far as the school goes, what are you guys up to? Yeah, I'm helping an intern tan an elk hide and then teaching people how to tan muskrat hides this weekend. Fun. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a lot of high tanning for the summer months right now, which is unusual. And then we're just starting to put together a series of online courses help get the get the skills out to more folks and running classes throughout the summer and yeah looking forward to it is your guys's patreon count live can you tell us all a little bit more about that so people can know where to find you yeah root school at on patreon is up and running and there's a bunch of different ways to get involved through that and then yeah we have a youtube page also under root school and a website roots vt.com in so many ways we're really just here to like be a resource and help share the skills with people in all the different avenues so really making it available and you know patreon gets like funny kickbacks where we get to talk to them personally and help people out on their own projects and what have you yeah but really just share the things that we're back to like being really stoked on and therefore like knowing that other people out there want to know it too so yeah, well, you guys do a great job and your YouTube videos are epic. So I'll include a lot of these links in the write-up for people listening so that they can find you. And other than that, for today, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? No, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, really. Very much so. Yeah, you bet. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Awesome. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks, Take April. Care. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Stay tuned for next week's episode when I sit down with angler Chad Brown.